Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. You know, I love this church. I was telling everybody that yesterday. My name is Paula Stone Williams. I'm one of the pastors at Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado. But I was working in Denver over the last few days, and I was telling how many people that I just love Denver Community Church. You know, I was really fortunate that five years ago, I was asked to speak for TEDx Mile High, which is actually one of the largest TEDx's in the world, the largest TEDx in North America, and that particular talk has now had over 6 million views, so it's now five years, three TED Talks, and 8 million views later that I was back yesterday at TEDx Mile High. I actually have been working with them and with Big TED, the parent organization, working with their speakers for a couple of years now. I'm one of the speaker's coaches. In fact, for the event yesterday that we held at Ellie Calkins Opera House, I was, in fact, the only coach that we had because our other two were out of the country. So yesterday, not only was I working, well, really the last month, not only was I working with all seven speakers we had yesterday, but I also was emceeing that show. Now, when you do anything for TED, it's all memorized. Every bit of it has to be memorized. Your TED talk has to be memorized. And the MC has to be memorized. So yesterday's show, 16 single-spaced pages of things that had to be Memorize 45 minutes worth of material I had to memorize. I mean, the L.A. Calkins is a wonderful place to be speaking. 2,200 seats there. We had a great, great show yesterday. But yeah, that, that is a lot to do. But I love it because our audiences in Denver are great. I was talking to some folks, one of our speakers, some of you might have been there yesterday, and one of our speakers... Um, is actually a relatively new Christian. She comes from Houston. And she said, hey, I heard that that you actually have churches here that are completely open and affirming. And I said, yeah, actually, I pastor for one, and I kind of regularly preach to others. And she said, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. We have none of those in Houston. Do you realize that? Most major cities don't have churches like DCC. I mean, to me, I love being in the greater Denver area and being a part of this church. And one of the things I have noticed about people of Denver in my 16 years here, after 35 years in New York, 
is people here are incredibly polite. You ever notice that? Of course, after 35 years in New York, I suppose everybody else is pretty polite, <laughs> right? You know? But, and we're not as polite as Canadians. We're, we're close, but we don't get, nobody's quite as polite as Canadians. But, but we're really polite here. And have you noticed that in the greater Denver area, there are a few phrases that are just kind of played out? You know, I mean, you've just, I'm tired of hearing them. And, and yet we hear them. And yet we're so polite here that we just always just act nicely when we hear them yet again. So, you know, here's a phrase you hear people say all the time. Someone new comes to the Denver area and they say to us, I'm not sure I like the weather here. And what do we say? I mean, we actually even say it. We say, oh, if you don't like the weather, wait 15 minutes, it will change. Really? Seriously? Does it change in 15 minutes? It might change in six hours. It doesn't change in 15 minutes. Besides, as a long-term New Yorker, it's not what I want to say. What I want to say is, if you don't like the weather here, leave. <laughs> Just leave. No one said you had to move here. Nobody says you have to stay here. If you don't like it here, just leave. That's what I want to say. Here's another phrase you hear all the time in the greater Denver area. People say, yeah, I, I put a native bumper sticker on my car because I was born here. And we nicely say, oh, how nice. What I actually want to say is, unless you're Ute, Arapaho, Cheyenne, Comanche, or Apache, um, take the bumper sticker off. You are not a native. That's what I want to say. You know, people come and they, they say, did you know that aliens live beneath the Denver International Airport? And we all just nod politely. Not, not what I want to say. What I want to say is, yes. Yes, there are aliens beneath Denver International Airport. I have seen them. They are, in fact, terrifying. Here's what you must do. You must immediately leave. Go at least three states away. Do not ever return. Aliens. Seriously. Here's, here's one we've been using all summer. Well, it gets hot in Denver, but it's a dry heat. I mean, a blast furnace is also dry heat. And this would, when I first moved here 16 years ago, people said this to me all the time. They said, oh, you know what? Our winters are so mild, you don't really even need a winter coat. Are you stupid? I mean, have you seen the amount of snow that falls here? Of course you need a winter coat. But we are, in fact, always polite because we like to keep the peace. You know, as a species, we like to keep the peace. When I was here back in May, I said one of the myths we tell ourselves as humans is that we in fact love the truth more than anything else. Well, here's the thing. We actually like the truth. We love belonging. And we will do anything to belong, including nicely keeping the peace. Because it's much, much easier to be a peacekeeper than it is to be a peacemaker. And so we tell ourselves we care deeply about the truth, but the truth is we care more about belonging than we care about the truth. 
So I told you when I was here back on Mother's Day that I work as a psychotherapist, as a pastoral counselor, and I am so moved when one of my clients who's been abused by a family member is ready to finally confront that perpetrator. Now, a lot of folks will not ever do that, and that's fine as well. But some of them get to the point where they need to confront the perpetrator. And as we talk about what that experience is going to be like, invariably they say, well, and my family, everyone else in the family, my mom, my sisters, you know, they all knew that I was being abused by my father, so they will all back me up. And then I have to say as a therapist, I'm really sorry, but my experience is you are not likely to have your family back you up. And I wish I could say I was wrong, but most of the time I'm not. The family instead just lets them twist in the wind, even though they're speaking the truth because the family cares more about belonging than they do about the truth. It takes an incredibly courageous human to be brave enough to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. So what is peace? We Americans tend to think of peace as the absence of conflict. But is that what peace is in the Bible? In the Hebrew scriptures, we get an idea of what peace is. It does not seem like it's the absence of conflict. Let's take a look. The book of Numbers, sixth chapter. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Here, peace is a gift from God. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God. The presence of God that can come even in the midst of conflict. So peace is a gift from God. It's the presence of God. In the New Testament, 61 times we see the word peace, meaning the same thing. Another 30 times it has a slightly different meaning, but both of them are still. Peace is the presence of God as a gift from God. There's one time, though, that peace in the New Testament is the absence of conflict. It's right here in the 10th chapter of Matthew. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, the absence of conflict, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Of course, if you're a parent with teenagers, this is nothing new to you. I mean, seriously, you know. I mean, our kids have to go through their differentiation, through their individuation, so there comes that point where they absolutely hate us. And this is fine. Hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is the opposite of love. So your kids hate you. It's a good thing, not a problem. And there still continues to be conflict in families. You know, one of the things I've discovered, because I'm older than dirt, is that it doesn't matter how old you are. Your children are one step behind you, and they don't get it. And I'm finally realizing by the time they truly get everything you know, you will be dead. So there will be no personal satisfaction in this. (laughs) Because they just don't get it. So you see, families are always dealing with conflict, but... 
But Jesus is saying to the crew here, you don't understand what's coming. They love the belonging they have with Jesus, and they also expect he's going to be the new political king of Israel. Better yet, he's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to bring independence back to Israel. He's going to give them wonderful responsibilities as secretary of state and secretary of defense. This will be great. And Jesus needs to tell them, oh, yeah, oh, not yeah, no. No, you know, the human ego is interested in just two things. The human ego wants power and safety. That's it. Just power and safety. And so they think Jesus is going to give them safety from from Rome, bringing independence back to Israel, and he's going to give them power, positions of authority in this new kingdom. Their egos are pleased. Power and safety. But the soul is not interested in power or safety. The soul is interested in the ride. The soul is interested in the experience of life. And that's what they're going to have with Jesus. They're going to have a wild ride that results in loving God, loving neighbor, particularly the neighbors who don't look like them, and loving themselves, which is, in fact, the hardest of all of these And so Jesus wants them to know, this is not going to be easy being a follower of me. We're not talking that we need peacekeepers. The truth is, what would be needed is peacemakers. That is what was going to be needed. So I knew from the time I was probably four years of age that I was transgender You know, in my naivete, I thought I got to choose. I think that actually was white male entitlement. You know, little white boys get pretty much anything they want. So it's like, if I want to be a girl, sure, I can be a girl. So I thought a gender fairy would arrive. No gender fairy arrived. I, I didn't hate life. I didn't hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. I went to college, got married, had kids, built a career. But the call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm. And eventually, decisions have to be made. And I said to my wife, Kathy, who had known that I was dealing with being transgender from shortly after the time we married, I said, it might be time to tell our three children, our three adult children, I had been convinced I could get through life without transitioning. I didn't want to do that to Kathy. I didn't want to do that to the kids. But now I was beginning to realize I might not survive if I did not transition. And so we decided to tell them. And the immediate response of my three children was peacekeeping. They loved me. They said, we'll figure this out. It'll be okay. Everybody will be fine. My son was that way, lived in Brooklyn. My two daughters were that way. They live here. Everybody said, it's going to be all right. We're going to be okay. And then once I realized I did have to indeed transition, again, we're with you, we're with you every step of the way. It'll be okay, we'll make this work, peacekeeping the whole way. And then the first time I saw my son as me, finally the peacekeeping ended. Jonathan said, I can't do this. You are a fundamentally different person. I said, Jonathan, I'm not. I'm still me. I mean, my name was Paul. My name now is Paula. Jonathan, it's just a letter. Just a letter. At which point Jonathan took the first step toward peacemaking. And the first step toward peacemaking is recognizing 
peacekeeping is no longer working. Because what he said next was, it is not a blanking letter. You are fundamentally a different person. He's right. I mean, those of you who are cisgender females, think about it. Think about the difference between you when you were 11 without estrogen and 15 with estrogen, right? I mean, huge difference in how you behaved once estrogen was in your body. Guys, how many of you can remember being 11 without a lot of testosterone and then being 16 with tons of testosterone? Yeah, you are fundamentally different. So you take away testosterone, you add estrogen, Jonathan was right. I was fundamentally a different person. I had exploded the family narrative, and he was furious. Cut me off. That's it. I'm done. Kathy and I realized we would need to split because I was a lesbian. She was not. My girls took stock and realized they needed to protect themselves. I moved to the Highlands My youngest daughter was 10 minutes away. I saw her once in a year. Every time I went to New York, I had to go to Manhattan and stay at a hotel because I couldn't stay at my son's house. It was, in fact, a very difficult time when we, as a family, were simply no longer together. And it was the first necessary step of true peacemaking. The step is chaos. Peacemaking always begins with recognition that sends a community, a family, a person into chaos. And that's why we don't stick with it. Because we really would rather prefer not to be in chaos. And so we go back to peacekeeping. That's not, never mind. We don't really need to talk about all that. But the truth is, the chaos is necessary. It's also not the end point. For quite a few months, that's what went on in our family. And then for quite a few more difficult months came the next stage of true peacemaking. Peacemaking starts with peacekeeping and then recognition and then chaos and then emptiness. Just complete and utter emptiness. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. You know, my former wife and I are both psychotherapists, and we do a lot of work together with couples. And we know that when a couple get to that emptiness stage, when they're throwing their hands up and saying, I don't know if we can make it or not, that is when the good things begin. Because once you get to the stage of emptiness, three things are beginning to occur that must occur before peacemaking can begin. The first is you have to grieve and mourn that which was lost. You have to grieve and mourn that which was lost. In their case, they had to grieve their dad, their husband, this person that was never going to be back again. They had to think about what that person had meant to them. Same thing happens if you end a relationship. Same thing happens if you lose a child or a parent with any major loss, a job you loved. You have to grieve what that meant to you. You have to grieve the love and the joy that came to you through that that is no longer there. You have to grieve and mourn the loss. By the way, grief is feeling loss. That comes to us externally. Mourning is expressing loss. 
Women have a much easier time mourning than men do. Most men grieve, but they grieve internally. To be able to grieve externally, that is mourning. That is the first step of emptiness. The second step of emptiness is hard for all of us because the second step of emptiness is to realize we must give up control of outcomes. None of us have as much control as we think we have. You have to step back and give up control of trying to get the outcomes you want and accept the outcomes that exist. It's an important step in the emptiness process is to give up the desire to control outcomes and then you must reestablish your own internal relationship with that which was lost. For my family, that meant to reestablish what we were as a family, to reestablish whether or not they wanted a relationship with me or not, to reestablish what we could all do going forward. They had to grieve that which was lost. They had to recognize there's not a lot we can do to control outcomes. And then they had to reimagine what we could be together. So my son knew I was headed to New York, and I got a message from him. He said, go ahead and stay with us. I said, okay. So I got to Brooklyn, and I got to their front door, and it was locked. So I texted Jonathan, and I said, do you want me to use my key and come in the basement or, or what? And I didn't hear back at all, nothing. And I thought, oh, he changed his mind. It, it's okay, it's all right. I sat in the stoop. I kind of gathered my thoughts. And then I, I started to walk up first place towards Smith it, it, just to catch the train, to catch the subway into Manhattan. And I heard the door open, and Jonathan said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was on the phone, I couldn't get off. And he said, let's, let's go take a walk. Jonathan actually has tattooed on his arm, it is solved by walking. But he has it there in Latin because it's cooler that way. <laughs> Solvitor ambulante. And so we started walking down toward the Brooklyn waterfront. And the next step of true peacemaking occurred between us. The first thing he did was be very clear with his words. You devastated my life. I thought I knew what it was to be a man. I don't think I have a clue what it was. You were my hero. Brené Brown says, clear is kind. Clear is not painless. But clear, ultimately, is kind. As we walked down to the water, he told me just how angry he was, and I just listened. The first step of real peacemaking when you get to that last stage is be clear with your words, and the second step is you don't take it personally. It wasn't my fault it's nobody's fault if somebody's gay or trans or gender non-binary. It's not a fault. It's a reality. And so I did not take it personally. And when you're working through conflict, trying to get to real peace, you can't take it personally. The third thing you can't do is make assumptions. 
all the time when I'm working with a couple in marriage counseling, one of them will say, well, you know, she thinks this, she thinks this. And I say, well, have you asked her? And, she's, and, and the guy's like, well, n- no. To which I say, well, you know, she's right here. We could actually ask her. Because the assumptions we make are virtually always wrong. I had all these assumptions as to why Jonathan was upset with me, and I was wrong about all of them. I just listened to him and listened and listened. And the other thing you have to do at this point of making peace, you have to do your best. Now, all four of those things actually are ancient Mexican Toltec wisdom. They're in the marvelous little book, The Four Agreements. To do your best, to not take things personally, don't make assumptions, and be clear and impeccable in your use of language. Jonathan and I finally were down by the Brooklyn Bridge. We were just sitting there in silence, grateful that we were able to to be together again. We're looking across the water at the lower Manhattan heliport. We're watching all the helicopters take off and land like so many honeybees, and suddenly they weren't doing it anymore, and that raised my antenna. And I looked off in the distance across New York Harbor, and sure enough, I saw six Ospreys flying in. Ospreys as in half helicopter, half airplane, military that are there to protect the president. And sure enough, in the middle of those six Ospreys were three identical Sikorskys. I looked at Jonathan and said, Obama's in one of those. He's going to be landing because he's speaking at the United Nations today. And sure enough, we're there. And yep, one of the Sikorskys landed. And I said, yeah, they were just so beautiful. You know, those were actually, and I told him the company they were built by and how Boeing had acquired it. And and Jonathan said, that's my dad, the airplane nerd. (laughs) The one who knows everything flying in the sky. I can't lose that was a wonderful rest of the visit. I flew back home, and just two weeks later, everyone came for July 4th celebration, and our family was rebuilding again. Now, the truth is, it'll never be the same. It won't be the same. It's difficult. I exploded the family narrative, and we have a wonderful relationship, but honestly, it's not as easy as it was before. It's not ideal the solutions we have now to what it means to have gender dysphoria, to be transgender. I I hope we get to the point that we can figure it out before it happens and stop it from happening so so many lives are not hurt. But it is what it is. And our family has come back together again through the hard work of genuine peacemaking. Jesus told his disciples exactly how this gets accomplished. He told them, In his Sermon on the Mount, as he began it, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart. He said, For they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, Blessed are those who mourn. You know, the very first phrase is actually a term that could be better translated, Blessed are the confused. I, you know, the, the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, actually, that's a single word that most commonly had the meaning of confused. I kind of like that. Blessed are the confused, because then I'm very blessed. <laughs> but there's a secondary meaning to it that it usually had in more spiritual contexts, and that is blessed are the poor in spirit, 
which kind of put in a rather crass but true way is, blessed are those who've had their backsides handed to them on a platter, for they shall be comforted. Yeah. Blessed are those who do not know what direction is up, for they shall be comforted. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn. And that word mourn means those who mourn the specific nature of their own abiding flaws. You know, these are the flaws we have that we really can't ever get rid of. The ones that when we're 55 are still the same as when we were 25, that are going to be the same when we're 75, and it's so aggravating to have these flaws and really the best we can hope for is that we visit them on others as little as possible out of our awareness of them. And when we do, in fact, exercise these flaws, that we step back as quickly as we possibly can so we do as little damage as possible. Yet blessed are those who mourn their abiding, never-ending flaws, for they will be comforted. And he says, blessed are the meek. You know who the meek are? I told you this once before. There are four different classes of people in the world. See which class you fit in. First, there are those who know that they know. Those who know that they know. Presidents, generals, admirals, award-winning cooks, football coaches. They have the knowledge. They know they have the knowledge. They want you to know they know they have the knowledge. Those who know that they know you're thinking of somebody right now. I can see. Second, those who think that they know. They're sure they have all the answers when the truth is they don't even know what the questions are yet. This includes most high school and recent university graduates in America, those who think that they know. There's a third group, this group I like, pretty much all of us here, those who know that they don't know. You know, we've lived life long enough to realize we don't have nearly all the answers we once thought we had. Eh, we've just become kind of humble through it all. Those who know that they don't know, ah, that's my crowd. But there's a fourth group. The fourth group invariably comes out of the third group. They're people who put themselves in a spiritual journey. They refuse to stop short, not peacekeepers, peacemakers. The fourth group is those who don't know that they know. Wise folks, that when you call them on their wisdom, they say, oh, not me, not me. They don't even realize they're wise. But they've been on such an authentic journey, they gain a wisdom they don't realize they even have. Those who don't know that they know, Jesus called them the meek and said they will inherit the earth. Now, if you want to be a peacemaker, Jesus is telling us right here how to do it. It's to have experienced enough failure that more than once you've had your backside handed to you on a platter. It is to be confused often enough that you're comfortable in a state of confusion. It's knowing your flaws well enough that you are able to accept the reality of them and accept and give yourself grace that you cannot get rid of them. It is a humility that leads you to confidence and humility at the same time by recognizing you are loved by God as you are, and now you can make peace. I don't care what your politics are. Really don't care at all. But I've been utterly fascinated by the January 6 hearings. And I have watched Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney with utter fascination. Adam Kinzinger not running for office again. Liz Cheney is. 
I don't agree with about 95% of her positions. She's not supportive of the LGBTQ plus community in any kind of a way that is in fact going to affect legislation. But she believes our nation is in peril. And she's willing to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. And she stands above the crowd, and I have no idea if she will be primaried in the next couple of weeks in Wyoming. I have no idea. Likely she will. But she will carry with her her character, her belief that whether she was right or wrong, she had great concern for the very continuation of our democracy and was willing to make peace not keep it. One of my favorite poems is Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey. And as I was watching her in the very last hearing, this poem came into my mind, particularly as it related to her. One day, you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. One day, you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, mend my life. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough. It was already late enough. It was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, but little by little, as you left their voices behind. The stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Give us courage, God. Give us bravery. Give us strength to take the road less traveled by. Give us eyes to look up, to see the stars burning through the sheets of clouds, to hear your spirit speaking to us, and to hear the sound of our own voice making peace. Give us that kind of courage, God. For this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.